I'm just going to read from the Proverbs as we begin. <clears throat> my son, if you accept my words, store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Our Father, as we come to your word uh, this evening, we come uh, with great care and we come pleading that you would grant us wisdom, reveal to us your insights, show us the nature of this world, teach us of all that's to come, shape our minds and our hearts around all you have revealed. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good, we're recording. We've got the right passage. Oh, and that's on the screen. Wonderful. Jeremiah sings the blues. Look, let's just step back and have a look at uh, chapter 13. You can see, can't you, broken into nice little paragraphs for us. More than that, the NIV's given us headings. And even by the way the various pieces are formatted, you can tell this is not... um, There's a sense in which this is not one continuous piece. Uh, I I think, as we come to chapter 13, we're approaching material similar to that which we've seen before in Jeremiah. This is like a a a series of snippets of various sermons, key things that have uh, captivated, well, have shaped uh, Jeremiah's sermons and captivated, we hope, his congregations, which now have been uh, edited together into a single whole. Whether that was by Jeremiah himself, whether by Baruch, his scribe and editor, we're not sure. But it, it, it's a little like a mixtape of sharing songs taped off the radio for, for a friend. I guess the significant thing for us this evening is, it, it, as we saw before, these things aren't random. Uh, there is care and insight and inspiration, not only in the original sermons themselves, but in the way they've been recorded and kept for us. There is a theme which uh, binds the various elements that make up chapter 13 together. We'll see that more clearly as we, as we, uh, once we've worked our way through all the elements. For now, it's just worth noting that we're in the same ballpark as we've always been with Jeremiah. These are themes of sin and judgment and exile. This is not easy to listen to. It's not easy to read, but it's important we're confronted with the horrors of sin and then the nature of God's judgment. Uh, We may ask from the outset, perhaps you did, even as the passage was read aloud for us, is there hope in this passage? And the answer is, I I think there kind of is, but we'll we'll come on to that as we close. So if you're despairing, hold on tight to the end. Each snippet, each element that makes up chapter 13... It seems to be marked out and distinct from the others by a really key, strong illustration or a kind of metaphor that Jeremiah uses. It's uh, Well, we'll note four of them as we go through, and then we'll go back through the four and try and uh, see why they've been put in the order that they have. The first uh, big picture is a, a ruined belt. I guess that's the most obvious of all of them. Verse 1 and 2, this is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen belt, put it round your waist, but do not let it touch water. So I bought a belt as the Lord directed and put it round my waist. 
not so much a metaphor or an illustration. This is something like an enacted parable, isn't it? Right from the outset, it's like a it's like Ross's kids talk. <laughs> We're getting the kids dressed up, except this time, not a child, but Jeremiah and just a belt. At the outset, it seems like a promising start. I guess we think of, well, where else do we come across belts in the Bible? And because we're coming back to the book of Ephesians later in the year, I guess that's where my head goes. And I think, well, great, armour of God, belt of truth. That would at least be an illustration, a sermon to give courage to the soul. Perhaps that's what this is about. But no... This enacted parable that the Lord gives to Jeremiah seems to be about the sin of Israel. It's to take the belt uh, to, to a place called Parath. Uh, why does it say that? I didn't note down. Whoa. You don't want to preach about judgment when the wind is blowing quite so ferociously. Uh, verse 4, Parath. He's to take this belt... And go now, verse 4, to Parath. Uh, Quick note on Parath. Uh, Older translators didn't translate it in the same way. And it's worth just pausing and considering the difference. Uh, Our translators have made it seem like a town. But there's a footnote in my NIV, and yours as well if you've got the church one, possibly to the Euphrates, do you see there? That's certainly how... Older translations, the King James Version, for example, uh, translates it as the Euphrates. The Hebrew word is, is seems to be that for the Euphrates uh, River, which runs through modern-day Syria and Iraq. Uh, I'm told that the NIV translators and others have opted to give it the name of a town because the Euphrates was, for Jeremiah and would be today, a kind of 500-mile trip. That's a long trip. To do it twice seems remarkable. Perhaps it wasn't the Euphrates, seems to be the logic. Perhaps there was a town called uh, Parath. But, but actually, I think the long trip to the river Euphrates, as the King James would have us understand it, is part of the point that's being made. Uh, he goes on his first journey to this foreign land, to the river Euphrates, uh, to bury the belt, verse 4 and verse 5. Then he has to go again, this time to collect the belt. Now, there's a couple of things about the belt. We've been told that this is not a leather belt, but linen. That seems significant. More, uh, I mean, what do I know about fashion? But I know that leather and linen are very different. Linen's going to fall apart more easily. Secondly, uh, verse 1, it's never before touched water. But now, buried in the damp rocks on the banks of the great Euphrates, it doesn't take a textile genius to see that, well, verse 7. So I went to Parath and dug up the belt and took it from the place where I'd hidden it, but now it was ruined and completely useless. That's a fairly bleak illustration that Jeremiah's had to play out. Why this belt? Why this journey? Why this outcome? It all seems, I think, to be a a metaphor for Judah's idolatry. They have spiritually gone to other nations, the nations around them, to find and worship their gods. And their idolatry has proved not only to be of no value to them, but it's so corrupted the people of Judah that they've become, as the people of God as they ought to have been, distinct and a witness to the world. Actually, they've lost all of that. They are 
Well, like verse 8, they are a ruined and completely useless people. That's the theme that's picked up in verses 8, 9, 10 and 11. God had bound these people to himself like a a belt round the waist, verse 11, but they've rejected him, verse 11 again, they have not listened. And and then we're told they've not listened to the word of the Lord because of their pride, verse 9, and because their hearts, verse 10, were given over to these other gods, the gods of the nations, the idols that they've worshipped. It's a protracted, enacted parable. And the message is terrible. Jeremiah exposes the sin of Judah. They are idolaters. Which leads naturally to the next question, which is, so what will God do about that? And it's our next snippet, verses 12 to 14, that gives us the answer. We move from belts to wine and wineskins. And we need to move carefully here because, again, uh, wineskins is an image with which we're familiar. But there's a danger that can hinder us. Uh, Again, if your brain works like mine, I hear wineskins and I think, well, New Testament and Jesus and the new kingdom and the new covenant, meaning new wine and new wineskins. That's not how Jeremiah takes this. Uh, illustration though he goes in a very different direction Uh, jesus message of wineskins is also very positive in a sense but there's another thread that runs throughout the bible in which wine and wineskins are uh, used by the lord through various prophets for a very different purpose how does it go well it, it starts like this jeremiah is to say to the people verse 12 Uh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every wineskin should be filled with wine. And and it seems as if this is a kind of common phrase to which the response is always, verse 12 again, uh, don't we know that every wineskin should be filled with wine? It's perhaps some kind of party slogan or a, a back and forth used at a family celebration. But it's not the slogan so much. That is, Jeremiah is not adopting this for himself. He's adapting it to communicate not the beginning of rejoicing, but the the beginning of mourning. The wine is not a picture here of gladness, as it is occasionally in the Bible, but, but of drunkenness and destruction. What is God's response to the sin of idolatry that the linen belt exposes? Well, his... His response is to be provoked in anger, to move the people and bang them together like drunken dancers at a wedding. Verse 14, I will smash them one against the other, parents and children alike, declares the Lord. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from uh, from destroying them. This, this terrible judgment that is provoked by their idolatry, Jeremiah wants to stress, will come to all of Judah. Uh, verse 13, civic leaders, religious leaders, verse 13, all those living in Jerusalem. The sin of Judah provokes the judgment of God. And, and that judgment is further uh, unveiled in our next uh, element with with the third of the, the the great strong illustrations or metaphors that he uses. I think verses fifteen to nineteen come together as a unit. 
although it looks like they're uh, swept up in the verses all the way to the end of 27, it seems to me there's a, a decisive thematic shift between verses 19 and 20. 15 to 19 come together as one, I think. It's presented as an effect of a, it's either a prayer of sorrow or a kind of song of lament. Jeremiah is reflecting now on God's judgment and he's, well, if I can put it in these terms, he's singing the blues. Verse 15 and 16 are another heartfelt appeal from the prophet. It's not too late, Jeremiah says, even now. Uh, you could turn at verse 15 here and pay attention. Verse 16, even now you can give glory to God. It's not too late. Listen if you will. But they won't. And so the, uh, the dominant image that, that Jeremiah moves to is, is of a man stumbling in the darkness. You know what that's like, don't you? I went on a stag do many years ago in the Lake District. Adam, the groom... To be went missing <laughs> middle of the night. Oh man, it was pitch black, freezing cold. Off we went, torches sweeping the rocky path, trying to find him. Lo and behold, at three in the morning, he was hiding halfway up Scarfell Pike. No place for any human being to be at three in the morning. Here's uh, Scarfell Park Pike in the daytime. It's beautiful. Here's uh, Scarfell Park at night. Scarfell Park at night. Uh, it's horrible. And completely changes. Darkness and walking on the hills is a terrible thing, isn't it? It speaks of vulnerability. It speaks of fear, if we're honest. Uh, Spiritually speaking, in scripture, God is light, isn't he? His presence brings clarity and reassurance and life and safety. But for Judah, as God moves in judgment on them, what awaits is that the terrible darkness of God's withdrawing himself from them. Not of light, but of darkness. Not of life, but of death. Not of safety, but of vulnerability and fear. Your hope, you hope for light, verse 16, but he will turn it to utter darkness. God will withdraw from them in judgment. Uh, Verses 18 and 19 emphasise that that judgment will befall again. We've seen this all of Judah. It's similar to verse 13, isn't it? From the greatest to the least, even the God-given royalty will fall. Uh, What's new in this section in particular is this, uh, in the middle of it, a little dirge of of Jeremiah's own uh, lament. Uh, He still has a a heart filled with love for the people of Judah, though they will not listen to anything he says and mistreat him terribly. He still has, remarkably, wonderfully, he still has more tears to cry for them. Verse 17, if you do not listen, I'll weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears, because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. You know those tears of praying for those who face judgment but will not turn. How much we pray them for our our neighbours and our friends, perhaps even our family. If only they would listen and turn, but they don't. And it's infuriating and fills our prayers with tears. The, The outcome of the judgment is stated, well, twice, fairly kind of straightforward terms. Let's say, in a slightly British way, in verse 19, 
all Judah will be carried into exile, carried away completely. That's just the bare facts, isn't it? But if you want the poetry of what's coming, if you want to feel the acuteness of what will take place, if we want to, verse 17, kneel with Jeremiah and hear his sobbing, then we can put that same event of the, text, of the exile in much more uh, personal terms, verse 17, Uh, He's weeping because, at the end of the verse, the Lord's flock will be taken captive. I can't think of a more provocative way of phrasing it. If I was to say the word flock, and you were to think through the Bible and what the Bible thinks, it's almost always a positive, isn't it? A sense of belonging, something like a term of endearment. Sheep together in a flock, it speaks of... Uh, dependence, they, they need to be led to fields of grass. It speaks of vulnerability. They need protecting from the wolves in the hills. And this flock, Judah, the people of God, they're not simply a flock, but their shepherd, their provider and their protector is the Lord God himself. This is the Lord's flock. That should speak volumes of warmth and safety and comfort and peace shouldn't it this is the flock that belongs to the greatest shepherd of all the lord god himself and yet such is their sin such is their rejection of him they refusing to listen to the shepherd's word then now he must send them away the great shepherd steps aside and lets the wolves in The captors will come and take them to exile. The Lord's flock will be taken captive. It it really is an emotive phrase. No wonder Jeremiah weeps. This is everything that shouldn't be. And all the consequence of sin. And, And if all of that is enough to make Jeremiah weep, there's one more element to put in place. And it shows us the nature of this exile to come verses uh, 20 to 27 i think come as one (coughs) jeremiah has painted some pretty uh, vivid images hasn't he we've become used to that with jeremiah he he is a wonderful preacher for that the ruined belt that's memorable for us particularly for his first readers every morning they get dressed they'll tie the belt around their robes hopefully they'll remember the sermon they heard that prophet preaching about their sin the full wine skin well again it's memorable it stays with them every time they have family around for dinner and they pour wine from the wine skin surely they must pause and think for a moment at the sermon they heard in the marketplace and the, the, the fear of the Lord's cup of wrath that they must drink if things don't change. Uh, the, uh, then this man stumbling in darkness. Which one of those who are first listening to Jeremiah wouldn't have turned an ankle coming home late one night or lost their way and had a moment of panic as the cloud passed in front of a moon? All these illustrations were evocative. All of them serve Jeremiah's message, making it memorable so that the people reflect that fearful judgment is coming. But this final image, verse 20 to the end, uh, which binds it all together, is really, I think, the most difficult to hear. It's not 
novel. Jeremiah has used it before, but it is horrible. And it is hard to hear, hard to allow yourself even to picture in your mind's eye. But it's the image which communicates something of the horror of the captivity to come. The horror not so much of the rough treatment that people will face at the hands of their oppressors, the Babylonians in time, and finally they're carried off into exile. It it seems to me this is about the spiritual horror of being publicly and openly disciplined by the Lord God for all the world to see. The picture is one of um, a humiliating disgrace. It's a, a picture of an unfaithful woman who has placed no value in the covenant with her husband. There's no faithfulness in her, no modesty, no purity. Verse 22 speaks simply of her many sins. But verse 27 returns to the same picture, the same woman, and speaks of her adulteries, even her prostitution. This is the people of Judah. This is their adultery against the Lord their God, their covenant husband, whom they've betrayed. And as this woman is humiliated and disgraced for her skin, uh, sins, oh, it's awful, isn't it? Uh, uh, her skirts are pulled above her face, verse 26, even torn off so that she's exposed, verse 22. Well, in the same way, Judah will be humiliated and disgraced as she is taken by a foreign nation into exile. The attackers are going to come from the north, verse 20. They'll take their possessions, verse 20, even their own flocks of sheep, which in an agrarian community means all their wealth, all their pensions, all their savings. These attackers... Moreover, will be the very nations that Judah has courted in the past, thinking that, well, if they can build good foreign relations with these various nations, then surely they'll be safe and these threats made by the prophet in the marketplace will come to nothing. But no, uh, they will, the Lord will use these very nations to destroy Judah. And verse 21, the pain they feel will be like that of a woman in labour. I take that, that that's the most painful experience the congregation can relate to. They've clearly never had a kidney stone. (laughs) Because of their stubbornness, there's a dreadful inevitability about this disgrace, as Jeremiah describes it. Verse 25, this is now, and isn't this awful to read, this is the Lord's lot for them. This is the portion he has decreed. It makes us as readers, perhaps the congregation even, ask why so inevitable. And again, Jeremiah's answer is not just a brilliant doctrine of man and sin. It's just so earthy that it's obvious for everyone to understand verse 23. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard at spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can no more change your heart of sin to a heart of righteousness than a black guy from Africa can lighten his skin or a leopard can change his spots. I'm presuming this is years before Michael Jackson contradicted all of that. You put all of that together, those four pieces, 
And, and can you see how they flow? This is not just a random assortment of bits of sermons with very strong illustrations. There is a wisdom here directing the edit of the snippets. The belt shows us the, the idolatry of the people. The wineskin speaks of the judgment to which the Lord God is provoked. The dark stumbling shows the fearful state of people uh, under judgment. And the exposed woman speaks of the shame of exile uh, for the people of God. It, it is a terrible but cohesive whole here, isn't it, here in the chapter. And we're left wondering where we were at the beginning. That is, is there no hope? If, if verse 23, if the people can't change themselves, who can change them? That is, if the people can't change themselves and therefore save themselves from the judgment to come, who will? Who can possibly? Who can, uh, uh, like an Ethiopian, change its skin or like a leopard, change its spots? I think we're supposed to be almost screaming out those questions as we read Jeremiah, as we hear him preach this. It's like the people that Jonah preached to in Nineveh. He said judgment was coming. They responded not by going, oh, well, there's no hope, then I'll do nothing, but by crying out to the Lord God for mercy. They, They presumed in Nineveh. That if he was willing to tell them about the judgments that come, he was willing to hear their appeal for, for compassion and mercy. And God did, didn't he, through Jonah? He relented. I, I think something similar is happening here in Jeremiah 13. If we can't save ourselves from this fearful and shameful judgment to come, who can save us? Well, they, what can they do but... Lie on the ground and cry out, Lord, show us mercy, Lord, forgive, Lord, save. Actually, it's Jeremiah who will give a much fuller answer to that question. Uh, I guess the answer, even in its fullness, should have been known to the people already, had they reflected on the scriptures that they had at that point and the teaching passed down by the forefathers. The answer is always the same wherever in the Bible you turn. Uh, Just as a bit of a cheat, we're going to consider what Jeremiah will say in in, in chapter 31. No reason to think he hasn't already preached this sermon, even as we hear this collage of sermons. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Not be like the covenant I made with our ancestors when I took them out, when I took them by the hand to lead them uh, out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You know the answer already, don't you? I I know you do. We ought never to take it for granted, should we? Especially in a service where we come to share the Lord's Supper. Because uh, with Jeremiah's words still to come in the book that we'll consider in due time, and that New Testament understanding that we're given, we know that the only hope, the only answer, 
is that Jesus Christ come as saviour, give his body as an offering for sin, crushed that we might go free, shedding his blood, the blood of the new covenant, that new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of and that we know so well from the New Testament. The answer to the question is that only God can save in Jesus Christ. And we know that salvation came to us at great cost. We'll come in a moment to share the Lord's Supper then. But it's, it's worth pausing, isn't it, and reflecting on Jeremiah 13. We started with a linen belt considering idolatry. And so the question is, are you guilty of idolatry? Am I? Do we find even in our hearts today that tendency to run to the things of this world to find comfort and joy, to find security and peace? Do we think the things of this world will save us when trouble comes? Wealth, family, career, friends. Are you guilty of idolatry? Am I guilty of idolatry? Do you deserve the judgment of God to come? And then do you know that your only hope is the rescue that God gives you in Jesus Christ? You do know all of that, don't you? As we read Jeremiah 13, perhaps even as we weep with Jeremiah, we we must run to him. We hold as tightly to the Lord Jesus Christ as we would to a, a life raft in the storm. He alone is our only hope. He alone is our salvation.